you know, there's this line where it says that Principal Mazur urged Susie to develop her potential. He encouraged her to write and reminded her to aim for a high standard in her work. And I think that's kind of what the brethren are inviting all of us to do today. Hello and welcome to the Saints Podcast. I'm Shaylin Back. And I'm Ben Godfrey. And in today's episode, we will be discussing chapter 31 of volume two of Saints, The Shattered Threads of Life. We're really excited today to welcome our guest, Matt Geilman. He's an area manager in global support and acquisitions for the church history department. Welcome, Matt. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Can you tell us more about your current position and anything you might be working on? Yeah, so I work with a team that makes sure that we're gathering the kinds of things worldwide that we need to tell the story of the church, not just in the United States. So I work a lot doing interviews and meeting with members throughout Latin America specifically, recording their stories, their experiences with the gospel. So yeah, pretty exciting. It's frontline, cutting-edge church history. This is the stuff that's being lived today that we'll tell the story of in the future. It's so cool what your team does because... Really, you're collecting the sources that historians will use in the next generation to write our history. And so Matt and his team have a very important role there. So Matt, with this chapter, it starts off with John Taylor, and he's being interviewed by this person. Uh, He has some sort of tax role with the government, but he also does some reporting for newspapers. Can you tell us a little bit about why he's come to see President Taylor and why President Taylor has, in fact, granted him this interview? To talk with him about plural marriage, it's kind of sensitive and generally he wouldn't have done that. But because Ovando Hollister has this connection with the government, he feels like he's got an obligation to talk to him. Recently, the George Reynolds case has gone to court and the brethren have used that as a way to advocate that this is part of their religious freedom to practice plural marriage. And it didn't go the way that was expected. And this reporter is coming and wanting to ask questions to John Taylor about, well, what's the church going to do? Or what does the church feel about this? Let's listen to a quote from the book that gives us a little bit more insight into what's going on in this conversation. I would respectfully say we are not the parties who produce this antagonism, John said. He believed the United States Constitution protected the saints' right to practice plural marriage. By passing an unconstitutional law, John reasoned, Congress had created whatever tension existed between the church and the nation. It now becomes a question whether we should obey God or man, he said. Wow, that really just kind of puts it in very stark terms what the church was facing at this time. Yeah, it absolutely does because obviously church members are wanting to do what's right in their lives. They're not trying to be against the government. They don't want to disobey God's commandments, like you said. So there's a line later on where President Taylor says, well, we leave that with God. It is his business to take care of his saints. And I think just this absolute trust that in the end, God will make this right. And I think that's pretty inspiring in a lot of ways. Someone else that we encounter in this chapter is Susie Young, and we've been following her story. And at this point, she's recently divorced, so she's a single mom. And something that I love about her is that she's decided to go to school and get more education to better herself and improve her circumstances. So can you tell us more about her experience attending the Church Academy in Provo? What's that like for her? That's a great question. I think it's worth pointing out the importance of Carl Mazur at the Academy. Carl Mazur was really such a mentor in establishing the tone and the feeling of that educational experience. And I think for Susie, I think it was probably a really important time in her life where Carl recognizes talent in this young woman. 
who has recently gone through some difficulties and challenges and asks her to take notes on devotionals and then eventually realizes this woman's talented with music and invites her to essentially start the music department at the academy, which is cool. It's interesting you mentioned tone. That was one of the things that kind of jumped out to me as well was... Is he Professor Mazur, Dr. Mazur, Principal Mazur? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Brother Mazur makes sure that the words of the prophets and the words of secular learning can coexist together. Let's listen to another little clip here from the book about his attitude and his system for doing this. Principal Mazur nurtured his students' love for the gospel and for learning. Brigham Young had asked him to make the Bible, the Book of Mormon, and the Doctrine and Covenant standard textbooks at the school. Students took courses in gospel principles alongside the usual academic subjects. Each Wednesday afternoon, Principal Mazur called the students together for a devotional. After a prayer, they would bear testimony and share what they were learning in class. This is a pretty a unique way to learn, at least as far as the universities of the day and even today are concerned. Absolutely. And you kind of get these foretastes, not just what would be experienced at church schools, but seminary and institute, and that there's this opportunity along with their secular education, which was very important to Carl Mazur, that they would also get this spiritual foundation for their lives. So yeah, I think it's cool to see it that early on, that this fusion of secular and spiritual learning. It's kind of interesting because I can see a correlation with what we're doing today. I mean, we've recently started the new program with children and youth, and we have the four areas. We have intellectual, spiritual, social, and physical, and we bring all those things together as we set goals and we learn, and it kind of reminds me of what Professor Mazur or Principal Mazur was doing at the academies. And I think what's important to connect to that is I get the sense that Principal Mazur was able to see the potential and those that were with them. And so as we're setting goals and trying to do the similar things in the church today, you know, there's this line where it says that Principal Mazur urged Susie to develop her potential. He encouraged her to write and reminded her to aim for a high standard in her work. And I think that's kind of what the brethren are inviting all of us to do today. They're saying, don't just settle as families and as individuals, but look at these categories of ways that we can develop and aim high and hold yourself to your best standard. What I think was neat about the story, too, is that Carl Mazur was a tutor to young Susie when she was a little girl, you know, learning. And so I think that's probably neat for them to reach this point where now she's starting the music department and them working together on the things that they're developing their talents for the good of others. So like we've talked about, she's having these difficulties, but I think that this is giving her a lot of hope and she has purpose in her life. And we also learn that she is rekindling this friendship with someone named Jacob Gates. Can you tell us more about that friendship? Yeah, so Jacob is serving as a missionary in Hawaii. This is way before Skype calls and easy communication. But she's apparently known him in St. George um, before he served, and they've started to send letters back and forth and really deepening that relationship and that friendship that they have. And I really like the line where it says that Susie worried because of her divorce, because of what had happened. She had two young children. She worried that she'd made a mess of her life, and she wondered if she'd ruined her chances for happiness. And I think that's it's maybe something that every person experiences at one point or another where they feel like something didn't go like they wanted it to go for whatever reason. And you just wonder if it's ever going to be okay. And at one point in a letter that she'd written to Jacob, she expressed something that I think is beautiful for anyone who's gone through a moment where you wonder, is everything going to ever be put back together again? She said, God is good and he will help me to pick up the shattered threads of life and mend them into something useful. 
that perspective, that hope is something that could give any one of us hope that there may be shattered treads in our lives and things that we wish were different, that God can mend those together. He can turn it into something different. And it's cool that that came up even in this correspondence with Jacob, that it was a relationship, a friendship that actually brought hope, brought that perspective into her life. I really love that line too. I'm glad you mentioned it because I think for so many of us that really what we want is just to be useful. Just take what little bits that I've got and let me help in some way. And when we do and we feel like, hey, I contributed, it's wonderful. And it's just so fulfilling. And Sousa is going to contribute in some incredible ways in chapters moving forward. And our listeners and readers are going to enjoy learning more about her story because she has much to give. And those little shattered pieces, they come together in really a miraculous and spectacular way. So keep reading because there's much more Sousa to come. George Reynolds is another character in this chapter. We mentioned earlier that he had gone to trial with the test case for plural marriage. He'd been convicted. And I don't know if this was on purpose or what, but they send him off to Nebraska. Tell us a little bit about why he was sent to Nebraska and what his sentence was. Yeah, you were talking 900 miles east of Salt Lake. And I don't know all the reasons. You do get a sense that maybe they were trying to separate him from the families and, and the situation. I think it was probably a soul-searching, humbling experience for him. He was willing to be kind of the experiment to see what was the limits of religious freedom, right? And then when it didn't go the way that it had been anticipated and the court case rules against him and they sentence him to two years for bigamy, which is being married to two women at the same time, an average person might at that point be angry at the prophet or angry at the brethren and say, why would you put me through this? And now I'm going to prison 900 miles away from my family. And he just doesn't go that route. He stays faithful. He stays calm about the situation. He ends up being in Nebraska for almost a month. And George Cannon and others are able to kind of lobby to get him brought back to Utah. So he's closer to home as he finishes out his prison sentence. There was something he wrote in a letter to his family that I think is kind of telling about the entire experience. He says, Be assured that there are many worse places in the world than in prison for conscience's sake. It cannot take away the peace which reigns in my heart. And as I read that, again, I just thought if I was in that same situation and felt like I was being punished for something that was a deeply held belief and that I tried to follow the prophet and it didn't turn out well, I might be a little more bitter than that. But I think what a great example that he felt peace because he knew that what he was doing was asked of him of God. And regardless of what happened with the prison, he'd be okay. I can't imagine how incredibly difficult that would have been for him. But what a powerful example of faith and determination he had. I really appreciated that story. There's another story about a mission companionship in this chapter, and it's Rudger Clausen and Joseph Standing, and they're mission companions in Georgia. And this is a pretty terrifying experience that they have. They're attacked by this group of men. And let's just listen to this quote from the book to kind of set up this situation that they're in. If you have a warrant of arrest, we would like to see it, Joseph said. His voice was loud and clear, but he looked pale. The United States of America is against you, one man said. There is no law in Georgia for the Mormons. With guns drawn, the mob led the missionaries deep into the surrounding woods. Joseph tried to talk to their leaders. 
It is not our intention to remain in this part of the state, he said. We preach what we understand to be the truth and leave people to embrace it or not. So, Matt, can you just relate to us, kind of remind our listeners what happened to these two missionaries and kind of what the aftermath is? Yeah, this is a difficult story in a lot of ways because on the one hand, the church is going through this, their identity is getting pushed right now. And with the George Reynolds case and some of the sentiment that I think the country's having about polygamy itself, and these missionaries continue to preach. They continue to go forward and do their best. And when the mob gathers around with these two, Joseph Standing, the older of the two missionaries, was terrified because he'd heard rumors that they get whipped. And as things started to look like it was going that direction, he took action. There was a, a firearm that was there. He raised it and asked them to surrender to him. And they responding in kind, uh, he was shot. And the scene is pretty heart-wrenching, right? As this missionary dies and his companion goes to him. In the end, the, the mob allows Rudger Claussen to go get help and they're able to get the body back to Utah for funeral services. Once again, this is a situation you might say, <laughs> I mean, you could just see bitterness grow out of it or difficulty, but yet it seemed like they handled it okay. And John Taylor continued as president of the 12 to express confidence that they were doing the right thing as they were preaching the gospel, even though this horrible thing happened. Yeah, the scene there, as it's described in the book, of the tabernacle draped with black cloth and thousands of people coming to really to celebrate the life of this man who they saw as a martyr, given his life preaching the gospel. And, you know, he is a martyr. And yet, like you say, they didn't quit. It's really inspiring to me to think about, you know, my own little challenges. And it gives me a little bit of extra oomph to go and say, I'm not going to quit either. I can push through this. This is one of my favorite quotes in this entire chapter dealing with this situation. At the funeral, President Taylor, I love this quote from the funeral of Joseph Standing. Men may clamor for our property. They may clamor for our blood just as much as men have at any other time, he declared. But in the name of Israel's God, Zion will go on and prosper. I love just the confidence of President Taylor facing all these issues at this time. Well, I was going to say, I think what you just addressed is something from this moment of church history that is so important to understand that I think maybe in the past, this is a a chapter of church history that members aren't really familiar with. It sounds like the brethren are all in hiding. It sounds like it's just so trying. It's so difficult. But when you read these accounts, you realize that the faith is burning strong. The confidence is still there in spite of what appear to be insurmountable odds. They know that what they're doing has been commanded of God, and they're not going to give up and not going to give in to the moment because they have a longer vision than what's happening at that time. Yes, thank you for sharing that. I feel like this is a major theme that has been present during the whole volume of Saints, too. It's been an incredible thing to read about, like you said, insurmountable oppression and just these obstacles that they're facing, and yet they know that Zion will go on and prosper, and that's what guides their decisions, and I've loved reading about that. There's another aspect of this chapter that, Matt, you'll be able to provide some great insight on. It's about the opening of the Mexico mission. So we've introduced some characters in our last chapter, but Matt, what do you want to talk about related to the Mexico mission opening and what's going on and who's involved? Yeah, thank you. 
this story is, is one that's not known well. And when you consider right now in Mexico, the church has almost a million and a half members. And then if you add up the rest of Latin America, this is a good portion of the church's history that is connected to this. To put that into perspective, the entire church didn't reach a million members until George Albert Smith was president of the church. 1.4 million, 1.5 million when President McKay was prophet. Wow. And you think in Mexico alone right now, that's the size of the church. So this is great that we're to this point where these stories are being shared of how did it start there? Because yeah. this influences a lot of members of the church. In the 1870s, Brigham Young had sent down the first missionaries, and that's discussed earlier, sent them by horseback down to Mexico, which is kind of crazy to think that they had to travel more distance coming from Salt Lake into Mexico than the pioneers did crossing the plains. And that first mission, there was an exploratory introductory mission experience, and they sent copies of the Book of Mormon in Spanish, Trozos Selectos, uh, which was just a selected passages of the Book of Mormon. They sent it throughout the country. This chapter addresses the response to those copies. There was a man named Plotino uh, Rodocanati, who was from Greece, who lived in Mexico, that had received one of the copies of the book and began corresponding with the brethren in Salt Lake and, and asking for missionaries to be sent to the heart of the country. Can you imagine being a missionary sent where people are like, um, we believe, could you please send someone down to help <laughs> us out? And President Taylor's like, yeah, we're going to help you out. But this happens again and again in the history yeah. of the church where people encounter the words of the Book of Mormon, they hear about the restoration, and then they ask, please send representatives, please send missionaries. So what happens when the missionaries get there and how do they get there? So what happens is after the brethren realize this is for real and that they really want to hear what we have to offer, John Taylor organizes another mission to Mexico City, which consists of Moses Thatcher, a newly called apostle. Uh, Meliton Trejo, who had helped with the translation of the Book of Mormon in Spanish, was not one of the first missionaries that went on the first mission. And then James Stewart, who had been one of those first missionaries. And they meet up in New Orleans and travel to Veracruz, Mexico, and then took a train to Mexico City. So when they get there, here you have Meliton, who is a native Spanish speaker from Spain. And you've got James Stewart, who's been learning Spanish since his first mission just four years earlier. And then you've got Elder Thatcher, who does not know any Spanish at all. <laughs> and these three are, they're here to officially open Mexico. And they meet with Plotino the, the day after they get there. And at this small study group that he'd organized, you've got 15 to 20 people that he's already prepared for them to teach. And they make a decision almost immediately that they're ready for baptism. And the faithfulness, the, the excitement of this group, it's almost palpable in Moses Thatcher's journal when he writes about this. When he describes these baptisms, they took them down to a, a little olive orchard just outside the city in a spring-fed pool. And Elder Thatcher wrote in his journal, all nature was smiling around us, and I believe angels were rejoicing above. And you think, there'd been a couple of other baptisms that had already happened in northern Mexico, but in the heart of the country, these were the first baptisms that took place, and there were going to be hundreds of thousands of people to follow. So yeah, really cool, really cool experience. I do want to mention this, that this doesn't come up in the chapter, but years ago I was doing research on this experience and studying Elder Thatcher's journals and James Stewart's papers. And in that same window, Plotino's wife has a child and the brethren are able to give the baby a blessing. And Plotino chose the name Nephi for wow. that baby. And I think that's just a small detail, but it shows 
the feelings that the Book of Mormon had already generated in this first group of converts. And today, you go to congregations in, in Mexico and Latin America, and it is very common to run into Nephi and Moroni and others who have been named after these prophets that we know and love in the Book of Mormon. And it started with this very first convert in Mexico City doing that. Oh. What a great story. In the next chapter, we're going to continue to follow Meliton, and we're going to learn more about his story, but we're going to foreshadow this a little bit. But he helps do some translation of another missionary tract. Can you tell us a little bit about that story and the miracles that follow its publication? Yes. In early missionary work, Parley P. Pratt's Voice of Warning was a very popular tract. So they'd prayed about what should be the next thing that they make available to the saints in Mexico. And, and they felt unitedly that Voice of Warning should be the next project. And Meliton, James Stewart, Flotino uh, worked on this translation. Well, our listeners are going to have to tune into our next episode because we're going to tell that story about the publication of this missionary tract and really a rather remarkable dream that leads to additional interest in the church and others joining the church because of this translation. Yeah, and I, and I think when you get to that point, it's probably important to note that when the first missionaries were set apart to go into Mexico, Orson Pratt, in one of their blessings, essentially blessed them that people would have dreams to prepare the way for the gospel to go forward. So there's a dream that is had about voice of warning that ends up being key to the first woman that's baptized in Mexico. Plotino has a dream about the Book of Mormon before he ever receives his copy. And so that's a theme early on. So there's a lot of good things that happen with this first group of converts. Plotino himself ends up only staying in the church, sadly, for less than a year or so. And there's a lot of reasons, just like there always are, right? And some complications that came up. I think there's some interesting parallels to maybe other important figures when the gospel was restored. When we hear things like David Whitmer or Oliver Cowdery or others that maybe fell away for a time, we think, how is that even possible based on the spiritual experiences you'd had? And sometimes life's complicated, but it doesn't take away from the significant role that they played in the restoration of the gospel. And it's the same in my view with Plotino, right? That the Lord obviously worked through him to help bring this apostle and these missionaries to Mexico City. Though Plotino was the first branch president and his counselor, Silviano Arteaga, was one of his friends that he brought in. Silviano ends up becoming the second branch president. So there's this continuity, right? And the work continues to go forward. And we don't know all the rest of the story of Plotino, but he does kind of fade off into the side as the work continues to go forward. But he definitely played an essential role early on. Matt, thank you so much for bringing those additional insights that you have from your study and your expertise. We appreciate the time that you've spent with us today. And we want to thank our listeners too for joining us on this discussion. And we invite you to share with us your comments and any feedback you have. You can always email us at saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. Again, I would invite you to tune in next time where we're going to talk more about the translation of A Voice of Warning and the impact of these translations in Spanish to the saints in Mexico and in the future to saints all throughout Latin America. I'm Ben Godfrey. And I'm Shailen Back. Thank you for listening.